0: I'm really hungry, I'm really cold. I feel miserable in ways I can't even describe and I'm not gonna do it anymore and they stop. And I couldn't believe that I had lived probably two decades with this ridiculous kind of low level pain all the time for something. So it was so simple. All I had to do was eat a little bit of animal fat and look what happened, my skin came back to life because I lost decades of my life to that kind of depression. And mostly what it took to lift it was simply Another kind of diet. Cancer, like insanity, spreads with civilization.
1: Body mind empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Lier Keith. Lier is the author of the book The Vegetarian Myth, that talks about her story of being an ex vegetarian who quit the diet because it damaged her health. Lear, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I, I really enjoyed your book and I uh, just wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about it. So uh, maybe we can just start off like uh, what is your backstory and uh, you know, what, what, how, why did you went vegetarian and what happened then?
0: Sure. Um, so I became a vegetarian, actually I was a vegan. I was never a vegetarian. I went hardcore right away. Um, And I became a vegan the way that most people become vegan, which is that I met somebody who was a vegan, and I was very quickly convinced. So I was 16 years old. I was a very impassioned uh, teenager very about justice and compassion and sustainability, and I saw all kinds of horrible things happening around me, my planet. To other people and to me and I was I cared about that very deeply so when I met this other teenage girl who was a vegan her whole family they were all vegans you know she was able to convince me very very quickly that this was the best thing I could do for the planet for animals for starving children for justice um and they give you you know an entire framework and I was very easily very quickly convinced that this she was right um so it only took about two weeks knowing her and I was done. I was a vegan. That was that. And I, I was 16 at the time and I did it for almost 20 years. Mm. So that's pretty hardcore. Um, and in that intervening 20 years, I did permanent damage to my body. Um, which is very difficult um, for vegans to handle. Um, you know, part of the problem with when you take up being a vegan is that it's not just what you eat, it becomes who you are. So the moment you start having problems with this diet, and they all have problems with it, like nobody gets away unscathed. But you can't think about it because it's um, very, very threatening. So you live with this cognitive dissonance. Um, and in my case that lasted almost twenty years where what I was physically experiencing did not match my ideology. So what was gonna win? Well, in the end, reality is going to win. Ideology Cannot pound, you know, reality into a different shape as much as we might like it to. That's not how reality works. I will say that the average person who tries a vegan diet only lasts three months, hmm. and that has been study has been done over and over, and that is what they find. Three months, most people realize I'm really hungry, I'm really cold, I feel miserable in ways I can't even describe, and I'm not going to do it anymore, and they stop. It's only people like me you know, who tend to be fanatics. Um, especially as teenagers, you know, that's, that's the age group where you're, you're really going to have that serious black and white thinking all or nothing. Um, you know, you, you get into that world and then it's really hard to get out of it. Hmm. A lot of times all your friends are vegans, you know, your whole social network is, is vegans. Um, and you know, anybody who deviates, it's like being a member of any other church where anyone who deviates, you know, you're a heretic <laughs> and you will be thrown from the church and I lost friends when I stopped being a vegan, um, there were organizations, I was part of small groups that were destroyed because I wasn't a vegan anymore. Um, <laughs> it's really hard and a lot of people who write to me who are in that situation, that is one of their main concerns, like they already realize it's not working for them, they've got all kinds of health problems, they've kind of accepted the fact that yes, it's true, the diet did not work. So. There's a lot of grieving you have to go through. But the thing they're most worried about is I'm going to lose all my friends. Hmm. And they're right. They are going to lose a whole bunch of their friends. And it's going to be really hard. They're going to get called all kinds of names. People that they care about aren't going to talk to them anymore. Um, It's going to be really hard to go out in public. You know, every time you go to the co-op, you're going to see five people who now hate you. Um, They're right. They will be shunned. And it's not any easier than being Amish, you know, when you're shunned. Um, And it's really hard. And all I can say to them is, you can make more friends. You can't get another body.
2: Hmm.
0: You do enough damage; it's permanent. So you are experiencing, you know, what it's doing to you. You understand that you know you're depressed, you're exhausted, your joints hurt, you've got reproductive health problems, like whatever it is that's gone wrong. Um, you 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 realize that it's diet. You've already accepted that, and now it's just friend problem. Well, your body is permanent. Your friends are not. And anyone who cares about you wants you. To not going to that's not how it is in the world you, there are a lot of uh very fanatical very single minded people and it, it just makes it really hard so anyway that's what happened to me uh 20 years in that world and even i you know was ground to dust and had to accept had to accept in the end that i had done this to myself so mm.
1: You mentioned like a few of these health issues that uh, p- people tend to have. Uh, w- what happened with you specifically? Which ones did you like suffer yeah. from the most? Which one that like uh, cut you off?
0: No, it's fine. Um, the, so the first thing that happened that I noticed right away was I started having really severe blood sugar problems. I didn't have a name for that at age 16, 17. But certainly within the first few months, um, I would get this horrible crashing hunger where my mood would just collapse, and I felt like I was going to die if I didn't put food in my mouth. And I now know that that is that blood sugar roller coaster that happens to people who eat largely carbohydrate day in and day out. You know, any amount of sugar will do this. Our our brains can only function at a very narrow range of blood sugar. So if it's too high or too low, it's an emergency for your body. Your, your brain is just, you're, you can die. I mean, any diabetic can tell you that. So too high or too low with the blood sugar and we just can't, we can't function anymore. And, and eventually it does become life. Um, and what happens is when you eat a load of any kind of sugar and you can call that carbohydrate, if it makes you feel better, at the end of the day, it's all sugar. Okay, All of that complex carbohydrate is broken down into simple sugars in your digestive tract. That's what your digestion does to it because large chunks cannot get through the brush border and it bloodstream it has to be small pieces so your body will break it down so now you've got this essentially a pile of simple sugar now at the end of the day it's going to get through into your bloodstream um, and what happens is now you know that that range it's too high you're out of the range and see. so your body really only has one mechanism to get that sugar out of your bloodstream before your brain collapses and the way that it does that is insulin and insulin is a very blunt instrument. You can see it's not finely tuned. Like we're really not meant to do this to ourselves. Hmm. So your pancreas pumps out a huge load of insulin. And insulin is, I mean, it's, it's just scattershot. It grabs every single thing it can that's floating around in your bloodstream and shoves it into cells for storage as fast as it can. So it grabs everything, um, including the excess sugar. Um, insulin is called the fat storage hormone. That's for a reason. That's what insulin's job is generally is to store, you know, excess energy in the cells, get it into the cells. So there's every one of your cells has um, a receptor for insulin so that insulin, the insulin can actually grab onto that cell and then shove the the excess stuff into that cell. Um, If you do that too much, it's like a lock and a key where eventually you're going to wear it down. You wear down the locking mechanism and now insulin doesn't fit as well anymore. Um, and this is what happens, you know, year after year after year. Every time you eat excess sugar, you've got this huge um, surge of insulin now released from your pancreas. It tries to get rid of all the excess sugar so that you don't die. But every time you do that, you're wearing out those receptors. And when you do that chronically, of course, it, the damage is just—it can be permanent. And this is how people end up with type two diabetes. Um, you know, that's everyone. My whole family is just wrecked by these diseases, um, and that's what it's from—is from eating these high-carbohydrate diets. So, pretty quickly, in my case, you know, it's probably part of my genetic, you know, kind of history here. Given that everybody's type two in my family, um, I started getting those horrible blood sugar crashes. So, okay, insulin does that, but now your blood sugar's too low. That's the other half of the equation. Having done that and rescued you from this emergency. You know, it's a blunt instrument. You know, it's not a finely tuned mechanism in there. So now your blood sugar has dropped too low, and this is where you get that crashing, headaches, like die if you get food And that's blood sugar problems. So that's hypoglycemia. Do that enough, and eventually you will end up. With so that was my life for 20 minutes Was I eat breakfast, and an hour later it was like I've got to eat. I've got. To And that just seems to be normal now in America. Everybody accepts that that's just how it is. You have to put food in your mouth every hour or two. Mm. Having lived that way, I understand how bad they feel when they don't do it. But the cure is so obvious. Just start the day with protein and fat. You'll be fine until at least noon. You may be fine until four o'clock. That's the joy of not inflicting that surge of insulin upon yourself as you just don't have. What I used to call hunger, that's not hunger, that's blood sugar. That's your brain telling you I'm desperate because we're completely out of range here, either too high or too low. Um, and we don't have to live like that. I mean, that's not actually you know, what our bodies are designed for, clearly, because it creates all this damage. So you know, a few more of the problems that come with this are you're doing tremendous damage to all your blood vessels every day. Because it creates this tremendous inflammatory response. So everybody, you know, for the last 30 or 40 years, they've been trying to blame cholesterol for cardiovascular disease, and they've got it completely wrong. I mean, that's like blaming the firefighter for the fire. The damage is created by the insulin, by that high carb diet. Um, yes, eventually that will wear out the inside of your blood vessels. Now you're springing leaks right and left. Cholesterol comes to the rescue, because when it senses that there's a leak there in the system, cholesterol is the body's air substance. So it will slap on a whole bunch of cholesterol so that you don't die, right? So that you don't just, you know, splurt. (laughs) Um, And so it looks like, oh, cholesterol is clogging your veins. No, the the real question is, why is cholesterol having to patch, you know, the, the inside of your blood vessels over and over such that you don't have, you know, these obstructions? And that's what's creating the problem ultimately is, you know, that huge amount of insulin, you know, three, four, five times a day. So anyway, I was doing that to myself. So that was the first thing that happened pretty badly. It was, it was tremendous blood sugar crashes that I had no way to understand, had no language for it. Just I knew I had to eat every hour or two. And honestly, by the time I was done being vegan, I had to eat constantly. I mean, it was like every 15 mm-hmm. minutes, half an hour, I was like, just put some other little snack into my mouth. Um, and you start to realize this can't be normal, right? It can't be normal to have to eat constantly or feel like you're going to die. But until you're given a framework to understand the this is what this is. You don't know what's gone wrong. You just know that you feel terrible all the time. So that was the first thing that happened. Uh, second thing was, and this is very common among women who eat either low-fat diets of any kind of or um, you know a lot of athletes. Athletes get these problems, and it's um, you know you, you're you're really screwing up your hormones essentially. So I really stopped menstruating at that point, and I you know, did not have a regular cycle barely was ovulating fairly. and that went on also for 20 years um, and that's what happens when you don't have any cholesterol in your diet and your body has in. what I now know is that cholesterol as much as it's been vilified cholesterol is one of the most life-affirming substances that's available to us and I say that because not only does every single cell require cholesterol cholesterol is what forms the membrane around every single cell in your body so without that, we would just be a puddle on the floor.
2: Yeah.
0: And if you think about animals, right? We left the ocean a long time ago. got legs. We left the ocean. We now walk on land. What we did was we took the ocean with us. So we are a set of electrical impulses inside a watery environment. How does that work? You know what happens if you put, you know, an extension, an electrical appliance inside a bathtub, right? It was, you know, it shorts out. So how mm-hmm. is it possible? Well, how it's possible is because the nerves that carry those electric impulses are coated in a substance called myelin, which is a specialized kind of fat. But ultimately, it's made from cholesterol. And that's how we're alive, is because the, our, you know, our nerves yeah. have that, that coating, that sheath around them. And that's all about eating animal fat. So another thing that cholesterol is, is the mother hormone. It's the base substance from which every single one of these hormones is made. So if you don't have enough cholesterol in your diet, you're not going to have any. And what your body does is, as a triage, of your body says, "We need these hormones this moment to moment to stay alive. We don't have enough cholesterol to make all the hormones we might want, so we're going to divert production to the ones that are just keeping us alive now. In some time, in a few weeks, a few years, whenever there's enough food again that we've got enough cholesterol, we'll talk about making sex hormones again." Right now, clearly not a good time to have a baby. You're half starved, so we're shutting off all that production. We're just going to keep you alive moment to moment. Let us know when you capture a mastodon, and you're going to have a feast, because then we'll be <laughs> talking about babies again. So what happens is you don't have enough sex. This affects both men and women. Low fat or vegan diets, um, you know, your sex drive drops, you know, pretty dramatically. But it's more visible in women because we stop menstruating. So that's what happened. In- I just didn't have enough hormones to kick the system off. Like it just grabbed a halt. And again, I didn't know what was causing that. I just knew that I, I it wasn't healthy, what was going on. And I did talk to a few doctors about it, and all they could ever say was, Well, you're just irregular. Maybe you want to go on birth control pills. I don't want to go on birth control pills. I want to know what's wrong. And it was all revealed, you know, like after I was done with all this crazy stuff, and actually was willing to investigate human nutrition and basic human biology, that's such a no-brainer. Well, of course, if you're not eating cholesterol, you're not gonna have any sex hormones. That's like step one, two, three, there it is. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not complicated. We understand the pathway. That's not weird. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. something we should all know. We should be taught this as we're children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of that information got broken. Mm-hmm. You know, even before we had like real science, nutritional science, you can look into any you know, traditional culture. And there's very clear rules about food, and everybody understands what keeps you healthy, what makes the next generation healthy. You can talk to probably your grandmother, your great grandmother, they will have stories about this. Like what was the healthy food? And I remember my grandmother. I mean, my parent my grandmother and my, my father were refugees in World War Two, and there was a lot of starvation and you know the kinds of horrible experiences that people have in war. But you know, it was this thing that you get from especially those immigrant grandmas, which is all about children, children, eat, eat, eat. and it was always really good food. It wasn't like mm-hmm. shove cookies in their faces. It was like eggs and bacon and soup, you know, it, mm-hmm. which makes sense. you got the broth, which is the minerals, and then you've got the protein, which we need, and then this huge chunk of fat. You can't absorb any of it without the fat, and that's what's really going to stimulate the growth. So it was all there now in your grandmother's wisdom. They Even if they didn't have degrees in nutrition and microscopes, tradition said this is how you build healthy children and they were exactly right so you know for thousands of years people had them stupid they saw what made them healthy anyway so that was another problem i had and i also ended up getting uterine fibroids and i know that that was also from soy it's very common the phytoestrogens really do a number on people's bodies they look enough like estrogens that your body tries to use them as they would in estrogen, but they're not, they're a little bit Mm -hmm. different. And so they make kind of wacky things happen in people's bodies. My Mm -hmm. sister got endometriosis from eating soy and I got uterophorites, so what's done is done. Um, So that was another problem. Then about two years into being a vegan, um, I started to get this terrible pain in my spine. And as it turns out, you know, roll the story on 20 years, I had degenerative discs in my spine, so that's the joints in your spine. And mine just completely fell apart when I was 18. So two years in, my joints were already a wreck. Um, What I, my condition in my case is what they call idiopathic. The doctors don't know why it happened. Um, People's spines aren't supposed to fall apart when they're 18 years old. Mm -hmm. Usually they look at the MRI and and they're kind of horrified and they're like, wow, you were in a massive car accident (laughs) or you fell off a roof. Like, Mm -hmm. tell me what the story is. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I was just a vegan. And that's the nutritional equivalent. And there's no other explanation for it like nothing happened to me when i was 18 except i had been doing this for two years um so that's what another thing that will happen you're not getting enough minerals just eat plants there's no way to get enough minerals um, the few minerals you are getting you have no way to absorb them if you're not eating enough fat that is how human digestion works if you don't have enough fat the minerals just pass right out of you
2: mm-hmm.
0: the minerals that, that grip onto them so it, No matter what, even if I had tried to supplement, it wouldn't have worked because I wasn't eating enough fat. So that's not going to happen. Um, And then there's other problems, too. I mean, in my case, the vegan diet I ate was supposed to be the good vegan diet. It was super pure. I never ate white sugar. I never ate white flour. I only ate whole grains and whole beans. Well, the problem with things like whole grains and whole beans is that plants don't want to be eaten either. And especially the seeds don't want to be eaten. Why? Because that's the plant's that is, the plant. And plants have had millions of years to arm their offspring with protection. The only protection that plants have is chemical. They are the original chemical warfare agents of the planet because they can't run, right? The only hope they have is to make themselves unpalatable to species that might eat them. And in the case of most seeds, they're very good at doing this. They have these substances that are either out and out toxic, Um, Or, you know, will create enough damage that the animal decides I'm not doing that again. So in the case of, you know, the kinds of things I was eating, um, they're called phytonutrients, um, and they are, or I'm sorry, um, uh, antinutrients, and there's a number of different kinds of these that come in the seed coat of things like wheat. Um, You can disable them if you know what you're doing. So traditional ways of eating things like wheat would be sourdough bread, and indeed, that long bacterial ferment um, will disable most of those anti-nutrients. So for instance, there's things called phytates, or phytic acid, and very specifically, phytic acid will bind with minerals in the human digestive tract and make them unavailable to humans, and they pass right through you. So eating this diet of whole rice and whole wheat and you know all these whole grains, whatever tiny little minerals I was getting, Forget it, it was right out the other end. So, hmm. I just every single way there was no way I was getting enough minerals. And I, this is what happens when you don't have enough minerals, they fall to pieces. So, it's my spine. And in my case, um, and it's there's no way back that is damaged once it's done. Joints, you don't really feel them, so they're very poorly vascularized once you get that level of pain. Hmm. so I will. I mean, I'll be in morphine level pain for the rest of my life with the spine. This is definitely something that affects my daily life. But, you know, what can you do? Like, <laughs> I figured it out. I stopped doing it. I will say that eating a more appropriate human diet, I was at least able to reduce my level. And I'd say probably by half. Um, and that is strictly you know, having to do with omega 6s and omega 3s. And this is another problem with the vegetarian diets, these plant based diets. Um, so, human beings need to use the omega fats, the omega 3s and the omega 6s. The problem is we have to eat them in a correct ratio. Um, They are converted into other kinds of fats in our bodies by different enzymes, but it's a long, complicated process, right? And those enzymes are in very short supply. And what that tells us, evolutionarily speaking, is that we originally ate them in a certain ratio and we need to keep eating them in that ratio because Mm -hmm. our bodies can't adjust for a different ratio. And our original ratio was eating Giant ruminants, megafauna on the African savanna. That was what we ate, was essentially grass-fed, beef, grass-fed bison, right? And that's the correct omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. It's going to be a very high omega-3 to omega-6. So 20 to 1 is great. Even 5 to 1 will work. But something like that. Right now, the American diet is so low in omega that some people's bodies test zero. Like there's none. And this is because of two things. One, we've all been pushed to this high carbohydrate diet and all of those grains, all they have is omega-6s. Plants don't have any need for omega-3s. So you can't find them in nature. They don't exist in plants. You're only gonna get them from animals. Um, and then the other problem, of course, is that even when you are eating animal products, they tend to be, guess what, factory farmed. Hmm. What that means is they're eating corn. So these cows now <laughs> eat the <laughs> corn, They end up in the same condition we end up in when we eat a whole bunch of grain, which is too many omega-6s. So even if you eat nothing but meat, if it's factory farmed meat, you're still getting way too many omega-6s and not Mm. enough
2: threes
0: because of what's happening to cows. So all of this means the omega-3s are responsible for calming inflammation and the omega-6s are responsible for creating inflammation. Now you need some of both to stay happy and healthy. Um, You know, dead tissue needs to be removed. Injuries need to heal. You need inflammation for some of that, and then you also need that inflammation to also be calmed. Um, the problem with just these high omega sixes, of course, is that you've got way too much inflammation. And you'll hear people, you know, kind of in the, the general culture talking about omega sixes. You know, you may see this come across articles or whatever. And that's really what they're getting at with inflammation: um, is that it, it's been widely implicated now in all kinds of disease states, from Alzheimer's to arthritis you know, it's a autoimmune diseases. It's, mm. it's the, the inflammation, the, the fact that we are so over inflamed is not doing us any good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of the reason that I'm in less pain than I was, was adjusting that omega, omega-6 balance that I was able to add the calming and And honestly, my, my pain level just went down to something that was a lot more bearable. So I did that to myself. Um, I also had problems that were, Maybe not as serious, but you know, when you're living with them, they're no fun. So for instance, my skin was so dry that it hurt. And I just accepted that as normal. It just seemed normal. I was doing it every day and it just hurt all the time. Of course, winter was worse, but sometimes it was so bad it kept me up at night. It was so dry and so itchy. Um, and the, the first thing I started eating when I stopped being was actually And within like day three, day four of eating eggs, I woke up in a completely different skin. Hmm. Like I could bend my arms and legs and it didn't hurt. And my complexion on my face was completely different. And I was amazed Hmm. because it was subtle and it was stretchy and (laughs) it didn't hurt. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe that I had lived probably two decades with this ridiculous kind of low level pain all the time. Mm-hmm. for something so it was so simple all i had to do was eat a little bit of animal fat and look what happened my skin came back to life so i mean that can get worse for people you can end up with really bad skin conditions like you know, psoriasis and eczema and like really bad stuff and a lot of times just adjusting your omega-6 omega-3 making sure you get enough cholesterol um people can get great relief sometimes even sugars, from that and i had to learn that the hard way so mm. i got that um i also i had terrible depression anxiety and this is very, very common amongst people who, low-fat diets, and especially vegan diets, lots of studies about this, about the, you know, just the mental state of people who try on these diets. Um, and it's really sad, because nobody wants to feel depression. Mm-hmm. Nobody needs to add more suffering to their life and to the world. And I, I mean, I have nothing but compassion for people who go through this, because I lost decades of my life to that kind of depression. And mostly what it took to lift it was simply another kind of diet. And just the level of, of I, it's just so hard for me to look at these poor, especially the young people who try this and they're clearly so miserable. And it's just so sad. Like, well, of course you feel like crap. Look, Look what you're giving your body. Your brain needs certain things. And I mean, we've all heard of serotonin, right? It's sort of, made famous now because of the Prozac and different serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Everybody pretty much knows what that is. But what is it made from? Well, it's made from, naturally in your brain, where it comes from is uh, an amino acid called tryptophan. So that's the precursor to serotonin. You don't have tryptophan, body count, serotonin. Well, where does tryptophan come from? They call it an essential amino acid because we have no ability to produce it ourselves. We can't build it from other amino acids we have to eat it but there's a number of amino acids like that right? they're called essential because of that reason we can't make them ourselves we can only eat them and tryptophan is one of those and that's the one that makes serotonin and it's really really hard to find plant sources of tryptophan they don't really exist um you know the best source is honestly red meat um and so that that's one problem is that you're just not getting enough protein especially not getting Good solid chunks of these amino acids that you for your brain to make those neurotransmitters that you know, will give you that happy, stable mood state. But the other half of that equation is the fat. Again, your brain is about eighty percent fat. It's a great big chunk of fat that and works and as cholesterol as well. Yeah, it's cholesterol. If you if you're not eating it, you're going to be unhappy. There's no way around it. And we're not told this. You know, like Nobody tells us this. They all say, oh, well, if you just eat a plant-based diet, you'll be happy. And it's not true. I mean, everybody just feels this tremendous crash. Well, not everybody, but pretty much everybody. And it's the most common complaint that I hear. When vegans write to me and they know that their health is failing, it's always the anxiety-depression kind of mm. spectrum. That it. it's That's the axis they're on. And, you know, it's, it's hard because I try to give them advice and hold their hands a little bit and try to walk them through it. But the number one thing is like, you're not gonna feel better until actually start eating regular Mm. food. Mm. And I know, you know, it's really hard, but you have to do it. And then I'll get an email, you know, a few months later, they've tried it. And for a lot of us, it's really just one meal one hamburger, (laughs) one chunk of salmon, one whatever it is, and you feel just absolutely transformed. And you almost can't believe how bad you felt because you suddenly, for the next two or three hours, you feel so much better. And, you know, that's the proof right there. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, you have to go through that period of mourning on your way out of being a vegan. But, you know, you've already made your case. You've already proved the point. It's, you know how much better you felt. So I, there's nothing else I can say at that point except, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry it mm-hmm. but you, you, you've got to move on. So mm-hmm. it's really hard. Um, but anyway, that's how your brain functions. So there's neurotransmitters and then there's... um. You know, all, all the synapses that are in your brain, they're all again, you've got to have cholesterol to make them fire. So if you're not eating fat protein from animals, mm-hmm. you're just not going to have what your brain needs to give you the sort of moments in moment experience that's really our birthright. So all of that happens. to life, just tremendous. I look back on this and I don't even really believe how bad it was, but like if I couldn't find my wallet, I would just sit and cry on the living room floor. Like you're not supposed to cry because you can't find your wallet. Like, you should have a little more bounce in your brain. Mm. Than, mm. Oh, the world is collapsing. Like, the universe hates me. It's all conspiring against me because I don't remember where I put my wallet. And, of course, the other problem is that when you're eating these kinds of diets, you have a, you tend to have a really poor memory. Um, and especially soy is implicated in this. Um, soy has an enzyme that specifically interferes with the hippocampus, which is the memory creations that are in the brain. Um, and so if you eat enough soy, you actually will have problems, especially with your short term memory. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I say this as a joke, but there's a reason I say, oh yeah, when I couldn't find my wallet, because mm-hmm. you just, you don't know where you put things. You can't remember who you're supposed to be meeting. You mm-hmm. know, you're missing your work things and your school things and like nothing. Other people seem so together. Why can I not remember? And I can tell you it's the soy, especially on the vegan diet. Like, it, yes, that will destroy your ability to make short term memory. mm mm-hmm. And so that's just scary because here's all these young people who have problems they shouldn't have until they're 80.
1: Yeah, like you you did uh, run through a few like many things uh, related to the issues of eating like a high carb vegan diet that may arise. Uh, but uh, would you say that some of those issues can be you know alleviated or fixed? You know for instance, uh, you, don't, you, you you can kind of increase your fat intake with like plant, plant-based sources of fats. And uh, you can also kind of get more protein and get more like uh, different, uh, I don't know, amino acid supplements or B vitamin supplements and things like that, and also kind of keep your blood sugar balance. So do you think that you, did you do anything wrong in a sense of can you optimize it? Uh, is it possible then to kind of actually do like a long-term vegan diet if you, if you know, if you kind of go into like a really, if you go into the detail a lot and kind of pay more attention to those deficiencies that may, may arise?
0: I'd have to say no, and I will say no also from experience because the last probably two years that I was a vegan, I had figured out the low-carb thing. Um, I had sort of stumbled onto some other information, and it was very hard to engage with it as a vegan, but I was like, well, I can figure out a way to do this. So that last chunk of time that I was a vegan, I was eating low-carb. So I tried not to eat any grain at all, and I ate a lot of nuts, and I ate a ton of soy because it's pretty much all you've got left of them. It's an incredibly constrained way to eat because there's not a lot left at that point. Um, but again, I mean, the real problem here is that, you've got the same problems of excess and the same problems that you'd have with any other diet. So there's way too many omega-6s. If you're living on peanuts and walnuts and almonds, way too many omega-6s, no omega-3s. So you're still gonna have all those inflammation problems. And then the deficits are still there. There's still no cholesterol. You're still not really getting correct amounts of protein body it's not all that digestible when it comes from plants even if it's the nuts and um, they are higher in fat but it's not really the right kind of fat it's not a big chunk of animal fat so all the fat soluble vitamins are only available in animal fats so vitamin d um, vitamin a you can't get those from plants people think that you can get vitamin a from carrots and whatnot you can't really that's called proto vitamin a it's a precursor to the kind of vitamin a that we need as humans and it has to be converted. The conversion for humans is very complicated, and a lot of people can't do it. So babies can't do it, young children can't do it, and as we age, we are less and less likely to be able to do it. So right there, there's a problem for a huge chunk of the population. There's also people who are simply obligate carnivores. If you are someone whose background includes um, living on, you know, as an island people or a coastal people, so Ireland, like, you know, pick your coast, pick your island. Those people, genetically speaking, a long time ago in our evolution, stopped making those Mm -hmm. enzymes. There was so much vitamin A in their everyday diet, they didn't need to do conversions anymore. So it turned off. If you Mm -hmm. don't use it in evolution, evolution drops it, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very, very um, elegant process, evolution. So those people will get very, very sick very quickly on these diets because there's simply no vitamin A. Um, and they have no choice. There's not even any way they can fuss around the edges with this. They've got to eat some some good animal food with vitamin A in it. Um, And so, you know, you could go the route of, well, I'll try to take a whole bunch of supplements. But the number of things you have to supplement basic nutritional needs for the human template. I mean, at that point, you're just eating a laboratory. I mean, you're eating a factory of industrially produced substances. And I have to say that one definition of an eating disorder is not eating food but eating supplements instead and that's where we've landed here you know if you think that you really can get it from a vitamin bottle and not have to eat, you you have entered the land of the definition of an eating disorder hmm. which cannot possibly be healthy so yeah given all the excesses and deficiencies of this diet i don't think that there's really any way forward hmm. um i think we just have to accept that you know we evolved as carnivores and we're apex predators all of the archaeological evidence could not be clearer. The first tools we ever made were really beautiful tools, um, and they were made for, for hunting and then for butchering. There's a really great story. There's a book called um, "Fairweather Eden about the excavations they did along the coast of England um, from this really wonderful site, um, archaeological site. It's 500,000 years old. And they found, of course, the usual caches of flint, Tools, mm-hmm. um, and they're clearly meant, you know, for butchering animals. And so they did an experiment. They took these very old flint tools to the butcher in the local town, and they handed him a dead carcass of a deer. And they said, if, you, "If these were your tools, how would you butcher it?" And he experimented a little bit because he was used to steel knives. But you know, after 15 minutes, he's like, "All right, I'm ready." And he took the carcass apart. And when they compared the cut marks that he made with the archaeological bones of animals at the same site, they were exactly the same, which is to say, if those were your tools, this is how you've cut it up. And indeed, this is what they found. This is how people cut it up. So it's mm. quite clear what these tools are used for.
2: Mm. Um,
0: the oldest wooden tools I ever found are in Southern Germany. Um, and these are uh, spears that were made of wood, which is a very, very straight grained of wood. And they're these gorgeous spears that are like 10 feet long, um, just, just so beautifully engineered. And what's fascinating about these spheres is that if you compare them to the com- computer, you know, like you know, use computer models now, right, to make javelins for the Olympics. So it's everything we know about engineering, you know, goes into making these incredible tools for our Olympic athletes around the world. If you compare these spheres to those javelins, they're basically the same. Hmm. Without computers, hmm. without engineering, without calculators, without hmm. any of that math, just trial and error, people figured out how to make the best tools for throwing take down a giant scary beast and Mm. that's clearly what we were eating you know every time they dig these tools up what do they find they find the bones of animals the tools are still coated with animal fat and then the bones are charred so sometimes they were cooking them um and then look at the art we made you know all over the cave walls what do you say it's like the megafauna the creatures that gave us life you know like there they were and there's pictures of hunting it's quite clear what stimulated our imaginations what was drawing forth that just that incredible awe Sense of Thanksgiving because that was the first art we ever made was those animals. So I don't think there's any. And I mean, anyone who's an archaeologist will tell. It's, there's no question. This is how we evolved. Mm. What we evolved to eat. Um, I know that as a vegan, I had a very different origin story, but it doesn't match any of the facts to what we know right. around the world. What is actually dug up from those sites, and it's got nothing to do with the vegan story. Agriculture, the oldest we know of agriculture is ten thousand years ago. And the first thing that happens around the globe when people take up some form of agriculture is they shrink six inches and their teeth fall out, hmm. uh-huh. which I can relate to as somebody who was a vegan. Like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Um, and then what comes is what we call the diseases of civilization. And that phrase, the diseases of civilization, um, that was coined by a doctor in 18th century, Stanislaw Tanshu. And he served under Napoleon. Um, in the army, and then he spent the rest of his career traveling around Europe, investigating nutrition and disease. His theory was that, at the time, people in cities were way, way, way less healthy than people who lived in the countryside. And his theory was that this was nutritional. And mm-hmm. he was correct. So he went around and tried to investigate, you know, as much as you could at that time period, what were people eating, what did it mean, why did we think this might be true? And he was the one who that phrase, the diseases of civilization. Um, because he saw the same disease patterns over and over. The people who lived in cities, you know, were ma- basically eating gruel. They were just eating a pile of carbohydrate. Um, they died usually within eighteen months of reaching a city. The so places were just you know awash with diseases before we had sanitation, you know, any kind of public health measures. But they were very sick, um, and they got things that we now consider normal. They got diabetes. They got cancer. They got autoimmune diseases. And when you moved out further into the, Countryside into the rural areas, the incidence of those diseases got less and less and less. So that was what he tried to document. And his famous quote is, "Cancer, like insanity, spreads with civilization." And he wasn't being he wasn't being funny. Like mm-hmm. that's what he observed. <laughs> they included mental illnesses. And mm-hmm. people diets tend to go crazy. Um, people who live you know among nature and eat a better diet tend to do a lot better. So um, that's where we get that from. But anyway, you know. When they dig up these archeological sites, that's what they find over and over. The disease, the, the, the bones of the previous hunters, the people who were the, the Paleolithic people are long and strong and disease free. And they have their teeth and their jaws are in good shape and clearly their teeth fit together and they're, they're looking good. And then you can look at the bones from the farmers and they're brittle and they're short and they're just riddled with diseases. And some of it's very dramatic. Like the, the spread of rheumatoid arthritis across Europe Follows the spread of wheat. Um, and we know mm. that wheat is absolutely implicated in autoimmune disease, but with rheumatoid, right. it's really obvious because the joints are so mm. distorted and destroyed. And mm. so, it just right behind wheat, you see skeletons that have rheumatoid arthritis. So, mm. I don't know. It all seems to add up to a, vi- a not very nice picture for agriculture. Um, luckily, we do know, you know, a better way. Like, we do understand the kind of nutritional template that really does lead to full health. So mm. we.
1: That's what that's. Test. That's what the Western A-Price's uh, research yes. also found. Like, Very much the so, teeth yes. started start to fall out if you miss out on like some of the fat-soluble vitamins and if you eat too like, much inflammatory grains. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and he
0: did it for, your, for your listeners who don't know who this is, he was a dentist in the 1930s who traveled around the world and tried to document, could he find people on every continent who achieved perfect health generation after generation? And what were they eating? Because in his own practice as a dentist, he'd seen dental health um, slowly be destroyed over a few decades. And he was convinced it was nutritional because we'd already seen and in the food supply, we'd already seen these big corporations start to take over the food supply, and people were eating just worse and worse, more and more processed food. And of mm. course, these cheap vegetable oils especially. And he thought the reason that children's teeth are no longer fitting in their jaws, like they did when I was young, um, is nutritional. And so he went around the world trying to prove it. That's the synopsis. He's He wrote a huge book that's not for a general audience but if you get excited about any of this it's well worth a read the pictures are amazing Mm. Um, but he documented this the world over and it's it's very it's hopeful and it's also grim both Mm -hmm. things at once so yeah
1: yeah it's so true yeah Um, but um, do you think that uh, can you kind of cycle being a vegan versus eating like some of these animal, animal foods, like, you know, a few days of the week you eat uh, plant based only, and then you get like, you cover all of your essential, you know, fatty acids and uh, amino acids a a few days of the week, because you know, the human body is quite adaptable. You know, you went for 20 years, you know, what's the difference of being, being, uh, you know, getting, not getting enough of those for like a few days only. Like what's, do you think that that can be possible in a sense of kind of cycling back and forth with it?
0: Um, I think on the days that you ate that diet, you would go back to doing the damage. You'd have all the inflammatory damage. You'd have all the damage to your insulin receptors. Um, you know, Any cancer cells that are started, you're just going to feed them with more sugar. Um, and then you'll get a little break, but then you'll go back to it. And it doesn't make any sense to me to go back to a diet that we know is destructive mm-hmm. when we know the diet that produces health.
1: Right, right. Yeah, like there's definitely... Uh, a, a different difference between uh, the, the the nutrition or the diet we evolved with and the diet we currently eat and also like what kind of a diet we should eat in the future so uh have you have you looked at like some of the research and studies as well like comparing uh, vegan diets and uh, omnivorous diets like what's the yeah. actual health outcome in terms of like the the person and the, their general longevity and health
0: sure. Um, so there is a lot of research out there. A lot of it is very conflicting. So if if that's something that you know you feel like you need to do to kind of convince yourself, um, it's worth doing. It's good to have at least some basis in you know, like a background in science before you attempt it, because a lot of studies, if you don't know how to read a study and figure out you know what are they actually saying, a lot of times the headline doesn't match what's actually in the research. So you have to be able to read the whole thing, first of all, and even the abstract, it won't necessarily match what the researchers actually found. So it can get really confusing really quickly. Um, One of the longest term studies here in the United States is called the Framingham Heart Study. And this has been going on since the 50s. They were trying to see, they were actually trying to figure out what is cholesterol, dietary cholesterol, what does that do to our blood serum levels? And then what does that do to our overall health? And mm-hmm. this study is so long term that, um, I mean, I, that is one that I trust just because it's been going on so long that, uh, you know, it does seem worthwhile. And they have found over and over again that the with the highest cholesterol levels are the ones that live the longest. Mm. You now, cholesterol is not a substance that kills you, it's the people with the low cholesterol that die the most. Um, and it's really across every marker. They're happier, uh, they're healthier, they have less cancer, they have way less heart disease. Um, and it's all about you know eating lots of good animal protein and fat. That's mm. is what is well healthy over decades. Mm. Um, so that's the Framingham Heart Study. There was another one that was a few years ago that was interesting. It was called the A to Z Study, and the doctor was Christopher Gardner. Um, was two things that are interesting about the study. One is that he himself is a vegetarian, so he was very invested in the outcome. Um, but he's a real scientist, and so at the end of the day, when the vegetarian diet did the worst there's a YouTube video of him saying, you know, when they announced it, he's like, I'm really sad about this, but I can't lie. Um, The vegetarians did the worst. Um, And it's called A to Z because, um, you know, there's various sort of versions of different diets that are named after the person who invented it, or they come up Mm -hmm. with a cute catchphrase. So it's Atkins to zone is why it's A to Z. And Atkins, of course, is the high, you know, the really high fat protein kind of diet. And the zone diet is the one where it's, you know, a little more moderated it, not, and then it's everything in between. Mm. So they had like out that vegetarians, no animal products, just plant, you know, kind of proteins, whatever. Um, those people mixed in and then all the way up to like an Atkins kind of diet and the more protein and he says this point black, the more protein and fat they added into the diet, the better everybody did. just across mm. the board. There was never a point where it was too much. Like they all did better and the vegetarians did the worst. I'm really bummed about that, but those are the facts. So mm. those are my two favorites, but there's a lot more lot more studies you can Yeah,
1: see. I think like yeah, the I've also seen that you know the cholesterol association with heart disease isn't actually isn't actually uh, considered you know uh, as as a, as a as a predictor of heart disease and uh, like the, the it does it's I don't think it's actually listed as a, you know, predictor of heart disease anymore like having higher cholesterol such
0: I mean they really tried to vilify cholesterol and animal products and it just didn't work mm. and instead I mean I don't know how it is I don't I don't even know what country you're in but here in the United States they did um, you know it's basically a, a I mean an unacknowledged study on mm. the population at large you know they went ahead and put forward the government put forward the food pyramid and they got all the institutions to change what they were feeding especially in schools and everybody was given this model of this high-carb low-fat diet we've been doing that now for over 40 years and all that's happened is every single health marker has degenerated people are sicker fatter you know just on every level our health has just gotten worse and worse um and probably probably
1: probably has to do with also like the increased inflammatory foods uh, in the diet, whether that be from like the grains or the vegetable oils, the trans fats, yeah. or the sugars oh, okay. or such, and you know it's, you know, probably someone doing, let's say, a healthier version of a of a low-fat, high-carb diet, they can kind of avoid those issues if they pay more attention to what they eat. But the, the general public, uh, or the general uh, standard diet, is tends to be more inflammatory already because of like the imbalances in the omega sixes and omega threes, or uh, and uh, the other micronutrients.
0: Right. And so like one of the main problems is that they've taken out all the animal fats that were in their sort of mass produced foods. All of those were taken out and Mm. they've added instead as the polyunsaturated fats, which are just hellish for human beings. (laughs) Until the turn of the last century, they were never used as food. Mm. They were produced industrially for things like paint and glue (laughs) and solvents, which Mm. is where they belong. Nobody ate them, but they're the cheapest oils to produce. And So they have now been introduced across, you know, into the American food stream. And so that absolutely is one of the main concerns. So for people who are still trying to do some kind of, you know, a a semi-vegetarian diet, I mean, one of the first things I say to them is, take out all the soy and take out all the polyunsaturated fats. Don't eat any canola oil, just drop it all. The soy oil, all of that has to go. If, until you figure out what you're doing for the future, at the very least, take all those out Mm -hmm. and then eat coconut oil, and avocado oil i mean that's pretty much all you got that you know isn't gonna the monounsaturates are okay like olive oil or peanut oil but they're still not great you know it's really it's not the same thing as saturated fat but it won't kill you the way the polyunsaturates will so that's always my first bit of advice for people who are just starting to you know kind of crawl their way through this like if you at least do those things you'll give yourself a few more months to figure it out because those are the worst offenders you know those polyunsaturates and un-
1: unfor- unfortunately like uh you have these new uh, you know fake meats or plant-based meats mm-hmm. that are coming up to the market that actually are made of you know the same things like soy and canola oil and vegetable oil so those those things are you know and I, i'm afraid like a lot of people will jump on a on the bandwagon on the bandwagon of uh, veganism again and in hopes of you know i can i can still eat those meats and uh, such but those meats are actually more inflammatory than the than yeah. the actual thing
0: yeah Well, all we can do is try to surround everybody with better information.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. true, Which I I feel like
0: is is really happening more and more. Because when I first became a vegan, there was nothing that I could find that said this is a bad idea. And nothing addressed the kind of political and social concerns that I had. Now there's so much other good information out there. It's not that hard. You know, when people start wondering, questioning, should I try this, should I not? There's. I mean, there must be 50 books I can recommend to people. Mm -hmm. I can tell them what farms to go to to take a look. You know, there's all kinds of information I can get them. Really great websites about it all. So there's a much broader range of, look, this is how you can address your concern about factory farming. It's real. Factory farming is horrible. But being a vegan is not actually the best way to address that. There are other ways, you know.
1: Yeah, that was one of the the best uh, parts of your book that I liked was the environmental aspect of actually looking into uh, you know whether or not it is you know uh, sustainable or sustainable for the planet to also go plant-based or such, can you talk about that aspect of the environmental aspect of eating sure. uh, animals and uh, you know growing crops?
0: So there's a big conflict between agriculture and life on earth, and this is not something I understood at age sixteen. I had no idea where my food came from. I didn't really know what agriculture was. I didn't know what it meant. So when vegans told me, the best thing for the planet and for animals is to eat just beans and grains. It seemed to make sense because factory farming looked so horrible. It is horrible. There's no question we should all be against it. But I didn't understand what agriculture was. So, to put it in really blunt terms, you take a piece of land, you clear every living thing off it, and then you plant it to use. So all of those plants and animals that had a home there, they're gone. And we have to understand the scale of this. of the world's prairies are gone. And 99% of the world's old growth forests are gone. They were taken by agriculture.
2: Mm.
0: And that's what agriculture is. It's biotic cleansing, We've all heard of ethnic cleansing where people remove other humans. Mm. Well, this is biotic cleansing because it's all Mm. life. And all you've got left for miles and miles and miles, I mean, across half the United States, all you've got is corn or wheat. So all that life that used to be there, It's just been removed. And all we've got is, you know, pieces of land on which to grow plants. Um, There's no way that you can reduce 98 and 99% of animals' habitat and call this something It's mass extinction. So every day on this planet, we are now losing 200 species permanently. 200 species go extinct every day. And this is why. Because humans have made this leap from being participants inside biotic communities you being these sort of monsters and destroyers who take over entire continents, mm. essentially.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
0: what agriculture is. So that's problem number one is mass extinction. I don't know how we can survive without all those other creatures that actually make our lives possible. I mean, we're pretty much pushed to the edge at this point of what we've done to the planet. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that every time you do this, of course, you're destroying the topsoil as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the soil mean we owe our entire existence to soil without it it's i mean you and i cannot manufacture our own energy we don't photosynthesize the people who do that are plants and some bacteria but essentially the plants um and they're the ones who did this miraculous thing where they take sunlight and they take carbon dioxide and they're able to use the sunlight as the energy and they split it apart and put it back together they take the carbon and they build their bodies with it and they release the oxygen and we that without them we've got nothing Right. They're the ones who make this stuff that's called Mm. cellulose. That's just plant bodies. And then other animals figured out how to eat that. It's mostly ruminants who have bacteria that can digest that cellulose. And you and I cannot eat trees. We can't eat grass. It's not possible. We don't have, you know, that multiple chambered stomach. Mm -hmm. They eat the grass and then we eat them. And then at the end of the day, the soil eats us all because we all die and then we get recycled back into this web of life. Um, so without the plants, um, you know, we can't do any of that. It's, we are like secondary, tertiary consumers. Um, and the plants do that with the soil. Uh, they, it's, you know, you can't have one without the other. So the soil, it's, I mean, it's like the rest of us. If When it's exposed, it dies. And in order to plant those annual seeds year after year, you have to plow. You mm-hmm. have to clear the land and then plant those seeds um, to grow weed or whatever you're going to grow. But every time you expose that soil, you're destroying it. Mm-hmm. the sun bakes it and the rain pounds it and the wind just blows it away. There were farms in the United States, the first day at the Dust Bowl, that lost all of their topsoil in the first, the first day. Wow. One day they lost all that soil. That's what yeah. happens when you remove the plants. It's the roots of the perennials.
2: those deep rooted
0: perennial plants that hold the soil in place. It's, really, it's an incredibly important function. The other thing they do that's really important is they make physical channels for rain to actually enter the soil. Without those channels, the rain just runs off. It has no way to physically enter the soil. And we've all seen this. We just don't know what it means. Like if you are you know, walking down the street and it's a rainy day and there's a bare patch of ground, like a bare lot in a city or something, or even a bare field that you might drive by and you know, if you're out in the country, you'll see puddles and puddles of water. Because it can't get into the soil. But if you drive by somewhere or walk by somewhere where there's some trees and some grasses, you're not going to see that standing water. Why? Because it can enter the soil through the channels made by the roots. So what that means is, every time it rains, water table is recharged. So all that water that's stored under the ground—it's you know these, it's this you know big area you know down below the soil where all that water is stored—and um, if if you don't have those channels for the rain to get in, it can't be restored. So there's less and less water to be drawn up every year that goes by. And ultimately, I mean you see photos of this on online or whatever, but you know, even the trees will die eventually if, if it can't. There's all kinds of repairing environments or um savannas, for instance, where uh you know the surrounding grasses have been destroyed, and so bit by bit the trees are all dying too, and that's why it's yeah. because there's the yeah. water table yeah. not because it not it's not being recharged. Yeah. So then across the summer when there's not as much rain. Um, it's those, again, those deep-rooted perennials will bring up what moisture there is in the soil and they make it available not just to themselves, but to the whole community of life. And that's what keeps the whole thing going. So plants do that. They do all of that. Another thing that plants do that the rest of us can't do is, um, and perennial plants especially, um, is they can break up rock. And they do this in concert with different bacteria. And there's really interesting kind of codependent, interdependent relationships between the plants and the bacteria but um, ultimately, the, you know, the bacteria has certain acids, and they, it breaks up the rock, and then they do an exchange with the plants. But the plants are able to then pull up those minerals from the bedrock—that's the yeah. surface, the ultimate surface of the planet—and um, they make those minerals again available to the rest of the living community. When I cannot eat rock; <laughs> we can't do it. <laughs> you can try; you're not going to get very far. Mm-hmm. But plants can do that, um, mm-hmm. and so that's what makes all those minerals available to us. And yeah it's, it's Without so true plants it all just falls to pieces
1: yeah it's, yeah it's so true like if 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 the entire planet were to go like plant based vegan then uh, we would inevitably have to create more of these large fields to you know grow more crops and uh, feed the feed the population uh, but you know that's the problem with that is you know you're taking away the you know quality soil and uh, the quality plants that would the diversity of it that would keep the uh, soil more uh, you know nourished by itself as an ecosystem and you, you can grow like you know cattle on that quality soil and uh, but you can't grow like crops with it and uh you know the, the sort of a, you know dichotomy in a sense of how do we how do we uh you know make sure that uh we keep the soil quality and uh, while at the same time preventing like this sort of massive deforestation and you know the the you know disappearance of the soils and uh, and such so that's like a huge issue and you know even even if you do say that. Uh, if if we stop feeding the cattle the crops then we could feed the population with it then even then it's not going to be that sustainable because like you you would need more you know in in order to cover all the calories and all the essential nutrients for the people then you would have to grow more you know more crops to compensate for the lack of uh, the calories you get from the cattle and animals so one
0: thing that people don't understand because I, I mean, I used to make those arguments you know, for 20 years. I believed in all that. And I did not understand the political economy that created factory farming. So factory farming did not exist before the year 19. And so what's different about that year? Well, what happened was, you know, throughout World War I and then World War II, um, various chemists figured out this thing called the Haberbosch bosch process. Um, and it's a way to make uh, nitrogen out of oil and gas. And they needed the nitrogen to make bombs for the different wars. But they figured it out is the point. So then after World War II, they've got all these factories, munitions factories, that are mm-hmm. just kind of sitting idle. Um, and they, and of course, other scientists, the agricultural scientists, for a 100 years had been worried because they realized, we're going to run out of nitrogen. We're destroying the soil year by year by doing agriculture. The population keeps growing. There's going to be a huge crash. The thing is, every civilization that's ever existed has ended in collapse. And it's because they've looked the topsoil. There have been 34 civilizations on this planet. Every last one of them ends in the same place, which is starvation. Right? It's like there's no more soil. And everybody gets smaller and shorter. And there's more and more wars. And everybody's starving. And the last proteins in the cooking pots are human proteins because now it's cannibalism. And that's where it ends every time. And this isn't going to be any different. But what they figured out in 1950 was, hey... Look, we've got nitrogen. We know how to make it now from oil and gas. So let's use that to grow more crops. We've solved the problem. Everybody was headed for mass starvation. So they started doing that. They bred, Especially corn, but they bred a whole bunch of different crops to grow much shorter bodies and much bigger seeds. So you're not wasting it on the cellulose. Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to get more of the stuff that the people want, which is the seed. And they pushed the genome of these plants as far as they could possibly go if they were any shorter with any bigger seeds, they would just fall over. Okay. They like, there's nothing else that can be at this point. Um, But so this is called the green revolution. Hmm. That's what it is. That's what it's involved is this, this hyper breathing of the plants and then the, the, this fossil fuel based fertilizer. So bingo 1950 arrives, they start doing this. And what happens is there's this mountain of corn surplus corn that's produced. They've got so much corn. They don't know what to do with it. And the price is so low. I mean, it's like pennies for tons of stuff. Um, and at that point, this being capitalism, somebody figured out, oh, let's take cows that are designed to eat grass. But if we put them in these really horrible situations inside steel barns on cement floors and feed them nothing but corn, a completely natural diet, if we feed them nothing but corn, they will get really fat really fast. So we can make meat a lot quicker, which means a lot cheaper, and yeah. we'll all make a lot of money and That was how factory farming was invented up until that point in human history, nobody had given corn to cows. It didn't yeah. make any economic sense. It was too yeah. expensive, it's too hard to produce. I want you to imagine what it meant to, to have to grow corn in the age before you know mechanization, like just the amount of labor that goes into doing agriculture it's backbreaking labor. Farmers work yeah. you know from from sunrise to you know sometimes it's not, I mean, just goes on forever. They never get a break. And that's why slavery was invented. Gathering slaves. The people who have slaves are, guess who? The farmers, because Mm -hmm. it's such wretched work. So, you know, you've got places like ancient Athens, which is supposed to be the birthplace of modern democracy. Well, 90% of the population was slaves. (laughs) This is why, because in order for anybody to have leisure time, a huge number of people have to be held in slavery to do grunt labor. Anyway, so nobody, until then, nobody would have ever considered giving corn to cows. It was mm-hmm. too hard to produce it. Meanwhile, cows do this amazing thing. They take an entire, whatever, meadow, field, prairie, a whole bunch of grass that we cannot eat, and they turn it into food that we can eat. So mm-hmm. all you have to do is let them do it. It's the easiest thing in the world, and that's why there's all kinds of pastoral societies around the globe. Mm-hmm. So simple, your sheep, your goat, your cows, whatever you've got, you follow them around, you know, you herd them here and there. At the end of the season, you slaughter some. You don't really have to do anything. They're doing the work. Like why do the work? Yeah,
1: that's so true. Well,
0: this is, well, yeah. And it's easy, you know, like just let them out in the morning. I've had goats. It's super simple. They just eat what's in front of them. Um, and they keep the brush down anyway. Um, you, so can, you, can, also,
1: you can also grow like the cattle in more of these more difficult uh, environments like hills right. and mountains. like you, you know you, you can't grow crops there because yes. it's not going to be worth it in terms of like the production and the, the amount of energy you have to you know the amount of energy you have to exert you know the, the cows and the sheep will then simply you know graze on the grass and you don't have to even you know, build any, any plateaus or any other roads or something right. like that either.
0: Just let them do their thing. That's yeah. what they're suited for. Yeah. So, And that, I mean, you could never turn those those kinds of pieces of land into anything agricultural because it would just wash right down the slope. I mean, you'd have yeah, no soil left. So yeah. uh, it's crazy to suggest that people living in mountainous regions should do agriculture. It's also yeah. too cold generally in mountains. So I mean, the whole thing is nuts to like impose this bizarre value system on people who are living quite sustainably with their cows and their goats. Hmm. But regardless, that's where factory farming comes from. Um, it's so it's up until very recently, people were never in competition with cows for grain because nobody gave grain to cows. It mm-hmm. made no sense at all, mm-hmm. right? Cows were a totally different thing and they ate a totally different food and it, you know, it, was, okay. it just made no sense. Mm-hmm. So that's why it exists. So for us to say, oh, well, if we all stop eating meat, then we'll have all this excess grain if they've got it backwards. That's not how it works. Um, and then the other problem with this model is you know, the idea is somehow, well, if we don't feed it to cows, then it can go to hungry people. Um, and that's incredibly simplistic as well and not going to solve the problem of world hunger. So this is how it works. You have these giant corporations that make this vast mountain of excess corn or wheat or, you know, fill in the blank. And then they go to poor countries and they do what's called agricultural dumping. Okay, that's the phrase for this. It's such a noted phenomenon that they call it agricultural dumping. So for instance, you know, Monsanto or whoever will go to the Philippines uh, and sell all this really cheap corn and they can sell it for about half the price that local farmers would it. Mm-hmm. So immediately you see what happens. The farmers are driven yeah. out of business because yeah. they can't compete in no way. Um, and so they lose their land. They lose all their traditions. They lose their communities. Nobody can now survive in these rural areas because nobody can earn a living. And they're all driven into urban squalor in these ever-expanding, exploding cities that are just sheer misery for everyone. Yeah. And that's what it means to say, "Oh well, we could then give that grain to hungry people. You're destroying any opportunity they might have to be self-sufficient." And in any other circumstance, these same people would recognize that these colonialist arrangements that the basic imperialism mm-hmm. um, cannot possibly produce justice, are not yeah. going to make local communities strong and you know, vibrant and healthy and, and independent. Like this is exactly what you don't want is to destroy their basic life way. Mm-hmm. And yet when it comes to food, that's exactly what these same people are suggesting. Like it just yeah. makes no sense at all. Like you would never suggest in any other way that you know people essentially in the colonies uh, should give up you know their basic self sufficiency, mm-hmm. uh, you know, be pushed into factories to make cheap consumer goods for rich people, whether it's sneakers or computer chips. And then with the pennies that you get, have to buy food from the centers of empire. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody calls that justice, except all of a sudden when it comes to vegetarian, oh, that's the model we're after. So I just I always have to think that they haven't thought it through because I know when I was a vegetarian, I didn't think it through. I didn't know better. It just seemed like, well, of course, if it takes 16 pounds of corn to make a pound of beef, that's not right. There are starving children. Um, and then when you actually understand the political economy of it, it's like, well, this makes no sense.
1: Yeah.
2: So, yeah. Anyway,
1: that's so that's, yeah yeah. and if you actually in d- the end result would still benefit the uh you know the beef in terms of like nutritional value as well as the economical value and, and such because if you do kind of if, if you if you would follow more like a sustainable agriculture model uh with you know rotation rotational grazing and lo- local farming then uh, you would first of all you would have to you know you would spend less energy on like transporting food across the planet as well and you would also uh, spend less less calories in total like you would you wouldn't have to consume that many calories to cover all of your essential nutrients and you would maybe end up actually consuming fewer calories because one of the problems was that you know there was excess calories and the the calories were so cheap that the factories didn't know what to do with it and people simply you know ate ate way too many calories beyond their need. And, uh, you know, that's where all of the uh, obesity epidemic and everything else kind of, you know, started off from as well. Too many calories, too cheap calories, and, you know, not knowing what to do with them, And um, besides simply to eat them or, you know, feed them to the kettle.
0: Well, so I, I always use this as an example. If we have one acre of land, there's two different models. There's two different roads we can go down with this one acre of land. So in the first model, um we clear all the life off it. So there's no plants, there's no animals, it's bare soil. Mm-hmm. And now we plant our corn. And at the end, and we have to add a whole bunch of fossil fuel to do that. Um, all the animals are gone, all of them. The birds are gone, but nobody can live there. <laughs> there's a few little rodents and maybe a few ground dwelling birds that will try to nest there. But when the combines come to harvest, every last one of them is mutilated, mm-hmm. ground up. And that's what's in your wheat, okay, is a whole bunch of dead animals. Uh, especially like you know little little ones. Um, but they think it may be as many as a 1,000 small animals per, per acre mm. for your basic yeah. grain crop. So this is not animal-friendly in any way. Anyway, uh, you got to do all that. You've got to add all these amendments that are all made from fossil fuel. Um, you harvest that corn at the end of the year, and you ship it off in a big truck, more fossil fuel, down the road to a really miserable situation where cows are living in a city, essentially, in a big steel building, and you feed them this food that makes them really sick, which it does. It burns holes in their stomachs. It's way too acid. Um, so these animals are really sick, really miserable. Uh, but they do get really fat really fast. So then they're slaughtered. And then the food goes on to people. But it's not right. The amino acid balances off. The fatty acid balances off. So you've got basically a desert. <laughs> no animals, no plants, no nothing. Water tables dropping. Like, just nothing can live there after a few centuries um bunch of sick cows really miserable and then a bunch of sick humans this will eventually collapse because the fossil fuel is going to run out um this just doesn't seem like a way forward but that's the model we have now Hmm. now we've got something else we can do with that same acre oh and that will give you one cow that's enough that acre enough to give you one cow's worth of meat for the year okay same acre of land we're not going to do anything bad to it we're going to leave it alone so every meter there's probably 25 different plants different kinds of species of plants That's how dense with life it is. Mm -hmm. That's just like the level of diversity in that grassland. And now you've got everything from bacteria to insects. You've got little amphibians. You've got ground-dwelling birds. You've got migrating birds. You've got small mammals. You've got some large mammals. And now you've got the largest mammal of all. You're going to have either a cow or a bison, some ruminant. I don't even care which one. Just pick your ruminant. can also live there. Um, and all of these creatures interact with each other. They all make more life possible. If the grass is not grazed, it will die. That is what happens to prairies that don't have ruminants on them. Um, they actually have to be grazed to exist. So you can't have a prairie without grass and you can't have the grass without the ruminants. We all need each other. And it's crazy to think you could remove some of them and not have the rest of them die. We all evolve together. So, anyway, there you are. Everybody's happy. And every year there's more soil which is to say there's more resilience, more life, and that could go on until the sun burns out. I it's just, that's forever. That's a model that works forever. And where does the human come in? Well, we're apex predators, so we also get to take one of those giant ruminants. And what do you know? On an acre of prairie, grassland in good shape, you get, what do you know? One cow. So at the end of the year, you've got the same amount of food, no matter which model you pick, but one of them is just dense with life. Mm-hmm. And everybody's there, like every bird you ever missed is there, like all these incredible animals that you could just find awe and love toward these, they're all there mm-hmm. and all the plants are there and they're all working together to keep us all alive and they're making oxygen and they're keeping the water table good and like, it's all happening, the minerals, um, and then there's enough food or there's that one ruminant that you just get to harvest. So it seems to me that this is not even, why did we ever do number one when number two is right there waiting for us? Mm -hmm. And and in North America, there were 60 million bison when the European um, colonizers first got here. 60 million bison in 1492. Mm -hmm. And they're all gone. There's literally like 1,500 bison, pure bison left, and they're all out in Yellowstone, and they're all being harassed to death. But they're there. People are trying to protect them. But that's all that's left. Mm. Those 60 million bison are gone and they've been replaced by, guess what? 40 million really sick, miserable cows. So it's not even the same amount of food. It's like less food than would have been here. Uh For what? I mean, it doesn't even make any sense on the surface of it. Mm -hmm. For just an utterly devastated continent where everything's been driven extinct. Oh, and the farmers. Let's talk about what happens to the farmers. Number one cause of death for farmers around the world. It doesn't matter if you're in a, a so called rich country like the United States or whether you're in India. Number one cause of death is suicide. Because they're essentially serfs to these giant corporations. They can't make a living no matter how hard they try. Mm-hmm. So they're not happy either. Meanwhile, if these poor farmers can get out from under the grain cartels and they make a switch to grass based farming, they can actually earn a living the first year. Mm-hmm. That's how successful you can be at this. That's how good an, uh, a living can earn. Um, doing grass-based farming. And the meat is really good and the animals are really healthy and you're repairing the soil. And guess what? Sequestering a whole bunch of of carbon out of the atmosphere. And it's the only way that we're going to fix the global warming problem is to bring back the grassland. Those Mm -hmm. are the only creatures that can do it. And they can. That's the amazing thing. Like it wouldn't even take that long, maybe a decade. We were to Mm -hmm. repair even 75% of the world's damaged grasslands. And let's be clear, they've been damaged by agriculture. If we stop doing agriculture, let the grasses come home with their ruminants, we could sequester in about ten years all of the carbon that's making the trouble in the atmosphere. Yeah. So yeah, there's they, no reason not to do this. There's just yeah. no reason.
1: Yeah, they they do say that you know the uh, the rainforests are the lungs of the earth. So you know the grasslands themselves are kind of you know contributing to that. You you can say that the grasslands are kind of the blood vessels of the earth, and you know yeah. creating the oxygen and you know and uh, preventing. You know the accumulation of these things, and yeah, like uh, I, I also like to think, like to think, you know, that uh, the the amount of land that gets wasted on these monocrops and large fields that would be much more, you know, efficiently used if they were, you know, grasslands again than if you had like some sort of cattle growing there. You would get more nutrition, you would get more, you know, the calories, and uh, you would, you know, also preserve a lot of the ecosystem and uh, and things like that. So, but, but what about like, the, the ethics of, all, of this entire thing? You mentioned you know, the humans are the apex predators and they're taking their share and so on. But you know, what, are, what, do you, what do you think about the ethics of you know, uh, growing animals and uh, using them for food?
0: So the thing is, for something to live, something else has to die. And that was really hard for me to accept when I was a vegan. I really wanted my life to be possible without damage or suffering to any sentient being. And it's not possible. You can put it off onto somebody else, but ultimately, those deaths are necessary for you to eat. And having tried to grow a lot of my own food, even when I was a vegan, it was impossible without confidence. Um And that was really hard on me. I didn't know what to do about it. And any number of times, I just gave up because I didn't want to be the person that killed. So I would just go to the store, or go to the farmers market, and buy my vegetables and feel righteous and pure and happy and calm. But it was a lie because, having tried to grow my own food, I knew that those farmers were doing all the things I didn't want to do. So I was just paying somebody for me. Um, you can't look at the devastation that is agriculture and think that that is in any way friendly to animals. Mm-hmm. I will repeat: two hundred species that are going extinct each and every day. That's not a few individual animals. That's entire species of animals that will never be here again.
2: Mm-hmm. That
0: is what agriculture does. There's no way to say that this is the food of peace and justice and sustainability animals. Hmm. Not. it's just people look at their plate and they want to say oh is there something on my plate and the bigger question is what died to get this food on my plate Because if you're hmm. eating agricultural foods it's 200 species a day it's entire rivers it's entire biotic communities that's hmm. what died to get that food on your plate you just hmm. don't want to look at it which is hard i'm not i know that this is really hard for people it was really hard for me but we are better off facing the truth so that we do it well because remember, you know, model number one and model number two. What they're choosing is model number one. They're just not carting the grain off to the cow in the miserable city. They're just eating it themselves. But the rest of that death and destruction is right there.
2: Mm-hmm. The soil,
0: the species, the water table, all of it. You know, they're, they're using it all up and they're pushing everybody else off. And mm-hmm. that's what I is. So it seems to me that model two is better. Um, it's an honest acknowledgement that death is a part of this cycle. But I think our only options are... We can be part of the death that's killing everything, or we can be part of the death that's the natural cycle of life and accept that responsibility. Yeah.
1: Um, and I'm kinda, and kinda kinda not not putting it to the extreme, like with the uh, animal you know, the massive animal factories like those things are unnecessary in a sense and uh, that those things are unethical. Definitely. Like I think most people would agree. Uh, but yeah, like there's a difference between uh, growing uh, cattle, you know, ethically versus doing it in mass and uh, kind of putting it into the slaughter. just.
0: Yes. Well, I know like Joe Salatin, he's a famous farmer, writer, sustainability guy. He does a great job on his farm and he's one of the people who's really, helped to popularize the idea of, of grass-based farming because he's done such amazing things on his farm but he talks about you know letting the animal be the animal so the pigness of the pig are you letting the pig express her pigness <laughs> and if those animals are having a full life then they are happy and all is well um and you know for a cow that means is there good grass right in front of me you can see the contentment you know, they're really happy out there being their native food and you know just doing cow things Uh, You let them have the social structure that they need because they live in groups, they're social animals and they need to have certain relationships. But as long as we don't interfere and they get to express the countess of the cow, um, it's the best we can do really. Because we have to eat. That's the thing.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: There's no way out of it. Like you have to eat something and there's going to be death involved.
1: Right. Yeah. And so it's going to (laughs) minimize the destruction of the planet then. Uh, but uh, what what can people do to kind of you know make sure that they're supporting the right movement of for the for their health and planet and what kind of uh, you know choices they should make with their food or should they actually start growing their all of their food?
0: If it's possible to grow some of your own food, that's a great thing to do because um, first of all, the food miles are zero, so there's no yeah. you know fossil fuel involved in getting it to you. I think it's a really good experience for people to have as well because you understand how much work is involved. Um, Even just growing vegetables, you know, you have to remove the perennials. There's no way around it. So you see, oh, let's expand this to everything I'm going to eat. Yeah, I'd have to devastate an entire field to grow enough food for me. Um, And that's just for vegetables, which really aren't that many calories. It's usually about 4% of our calories come from vegetables. But it's just a good experience. Get your hands in the dirt and see what it's all about and right. see what makes soil healthy. Because you'll figure out pretty quickly that it, the soil wants animal products and there's not really any way out of that. That right. is a very ancient equation and we did not invent it and we can't interfere with it. So there's that. Um, but there are very, very good farms out there that are doing everything really well and that understand these issues um, and that you know want to restore the planet and want to restore soil and Treat their animals well and will give you really good nutrition for that. In the United States, there's a really great website, called Wild.com, and it's run by a woman named Joe Robinson. She's written about pasture-based farming. Um, and she'll, you know, all her information This is a lot to brain if you're just listening. But anyway, her books are really good, and her website. Uh, you can go state by state and see she's got all the good farms listed so you can where you live go visit the farms and see what you want and if you like it and it's it's really great to have personal relationships with, with your farmer right, because right. it's just on every level so you're I mean by supporting these farms you are sequestering carbon um, you're repairing habitat for any animal you might love you're repairing habitat stirring the water table helping local waterways because all that soil is not running off into local streams to kill everything. Um, and But you're also supporting a human community because mm-hmm. when you are letting that farmer survive, actually paying them a decent wage for hard work, um, there's a multiplier effect. So that whole rural community now has more money because when that farmer goes into town to buy things, you know, he or she has some money. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you're helping that whole local They've got money to repair the roof. They've got money to buy health insurance. And they've got money to put away for the kids' education. Like, that all really matters. Because yeah. right now, the farm, rural communities, at least in the United States, are absolutely devastated by all of this. So anything you can do to get, get money into the hands of you know, good farmers doing doing a good job is, is money well spent for mm-hmm. all of us, for the whole planet. So mm-hmm. eatwild.com is the best start. In other countries, I don't really know. I'm sure there's similar websites, but I don't know what they are. But there's a lot of good books. You can also go to the Weston Price Foundation, which is westonaprice.org, and they have worldwide chapters, and that's a really good place to start. Mm-hmm. Contact yeah. whoever's in your country, in your region, and they will at least be able to get you started. Um, and mm-hmm. they're generally really friendly people. They're really excited about all this information. They're really happy to help. I've never bumped into anybody from Weston Price who wasn't a really decent, helpful person, so I, I highly recommend them. Well.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's so true. Like uh, that, uh, information or you know, raising awareness about it and learning about it, it's 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 the key aspect of you know getting back in touch with with your food sources, and not you know living in some sort of a you know echo chamber in a sense that uh, and you know only only living in a city and not knowing where your food is coming from and always seeing like what's what's on the plate. Uh, but uh, what 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 kind of a diet do you follow at the moment uh, after switching over to uh, like. A, other yeah. other sorts of things
0: so i basically eat a paleo diet mm. um i don't eat any grain at all first of all i mean it's you know obviously not a good thing for the planet but more important i have a number of autoimmune diseases and it really does help not to eat any grain at all mm. it's just one of the only things that really makes a difference so i just avoid grain entirely um so you know like for breakfast this morning i had two eggs and i'm very lucky because i have local I don't have chickens right now. I have had chickens in the past, but um, there's really good local farms. I live in a rural area, which makes sense But see that there's lots of really good eggs I can get from neighbors. So I'm very happy about that, chicken eggs and duck eggs. Um, and also, just because I got lucky, in my little tiny town, we have an award-winning cheese factory. <laughs> okay. And when I say award-winning, they took their cheese to Devon, England, to an international contest, came with a Blue Ribbon. And Devon, England is like, Bullseye, I mean, that's like the best dairy in the world. And they got a blue ribbon, my little tiny cheese factory. So, mm-hmm. and they have uh, most of their cheese is from grass based local farms. So the cheese mm-hmm. is fantastic. And I can get it really cheap, get it cut right you go to the factory outlet store. So I've got really good cheese on tap. Um, so I had eggs and cheese for breakfast. Um, mm-hmm. And for dinner, for lunch, I'll probably have a salad and it's kind of like my you know, mm-hmm. best meal. And then I'll have a little bit of a snack at three o'clock, which is one or the other it'll be some sausages or maybe some more cheese or something um and that's pretty much what i eat i eat a little fruit i'm not really big on fruit um but yeah it's it's mostly um green leafy things uh a few colored vegetables now and then peppers or tomatoes or something and then um lots of eggs and meat and cheese
2: hmm. yeah, and, uh, yeah.
0: i feel better than i have you know <laughs> since <Yeah>. forever so <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah it is like uh you know, you can still eat like a bunch of vegetables and the vegetables are healthy for you. So <laughs> it's not like, yeah. you know, yeah. exclusive entirely. Mm, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, uh, before I ask my last question, where can people learn more about you and your book?
0: Sure. Um, the best way is to go to my website. Uh, the problem is that I have a funny name. So you have to know how to spell it. L-I-E-R-R-E-A-E-I-T-H. If you can't remember that, Really, the easy way to get to my book is just type vegetarian myth into Google. There's mm-hmm. only one book with that title. You will find me right away. So mm-hmm. vegetarian myth is probably the easiest way to find me. But I have a website what I'm up to and what I'm writing and where I'm speaking and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, we're, we're going to leave all the links in the show notes and uh, people can check it out. Uh, but uh, my last question is, uh, what would be this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that
0: improved your body and your mind? yeah, I wish I'd never taken up veganism, but um <laughs> if I hadn't, if i if I was gonna take it up, I wish that I had listened sooner. Like when I started to have physical problems, I wish that um, mm-hmm. I had listened to that because mm-hmm. I didn't. I overrode it, really believing that the ideology right. had to be true. and it wasn't. I mean, it doesn't reality doesn't work that way. So mm-hmm. I lived with cognitive dissonance instead, mm-hmm. and that is not a good place to be. So, um, yeah, listen, if your body hurts, you're doing something wrong. And if you feel exhausted, and tired, and depressed, it's not working. And if your joints are hurting, it's definitely not working. Um, all of that, just mm. yeah. it's not working. It's, it's, it's,
1: it's, it's one of those uh, cognitive biases that humans have. I'm not sure exactly what the name is something like a cost fallacy bias or something that the more yeah. you've invested into something, the more precious it becomes and the less yeah. you want to give it up, you know, whether that be like marriage or, you know, nutrition or dietary habits or something like that. And yeah, like uh, it's, it's glad, you know, that you finally got your, got your, you know, got your, got your way out of it in a sense. And you know, the same can happen to both ways, like people who are doing like some sort of a keto diet or a paleo diet, e- even if they do, you know, not feel at their best then they're still gonna stick to it you know stubbornly and uh, they, they can damage their health in so doing so the key is always to do what you know what's best for your health and uh, to never never get lost in the tracks Yep. yeah so that's i think that's a good uh, good point to end with the podcast as well and yeah i really enjoyed talking with you and uh probably looking forward to your future uh, writing as well are you writing anything else in the future
0: yeah, uh, the book that I'm writing right now uh, is called Bright Green Lies and I'm working on it with two friends and it's basically talking about all the industrial solutions um, to industrial society and why they are not any kind of solution but just more of the same problem.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: we're not going to be able to invent our way out of this. Um, I mean, I guess it's sort of grim, but we, we do have to face the facts here. It's, there are solutions to global warming, but they're not solar and wind it's right. really just about restoring forests and prairies and wetlands hmm. is really the only way out so that's you know the take-home point but yeah that's that true that book should be out pretty soon we're almost done so.
1: okay. but i've
0: got other stuff if you look at my website there's other stuff i've got out there
1: all right that's that sounds interesting uh but yeah there, thanks for coming to the podcast and uh, i'll see you in the future all right thank you that's it for this episode of the body mind and power podcast if you want to support us then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on the iTunes or the other social media platforms. Definitely check out the show notes for the topics that we discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay Empowered.